0: How do the best data scientists in the world master their data sets, train their models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science podcast. You can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. At that time, I said (laughs) that I want people to hear this, that you have worth and you have skills and there's someone who needs that somewhere. Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the Towards Data Science Podcast. My name as usual is Jeremy, and I'm on the team over at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program. Now, if you're interested in upping your coding game, which most people are, or your data science game in general, it's worth taking some time to understand the process of learning itself. And if there's one company that studied the learning process more than almost anyone else, it's Code Academy. Code Academy's developed a deep understanding of what it takes to get people to learn how to code, which is exactly why I wanted to speak to their head of data science, Kat Joe, who's joining us for this episode of the podcast. I'm really looking forward to diving into this one, talking about how to learn how to learn and habit formation in the context of learning data science, among other things. Uh, so let's dive into this. Uh, Kat, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me. Really excited to have you. So you were actually the very first data science hire at Code Academy which of course is a really big platform that's helped over 45 million users learn how to code. And you're now working there as their head of data science. And I think there's a lot we have to talk about in terms of what you've learned about learning from your data, as well as some of the data science problems you're tackling there. But um, first, I want to talk a little bit about how you got started in data science, which was from the world ultimately of academia and research, right?
1: Yeah, um, a little bit. It's, it's kind of funny because whenever I talk to data scientists or, or kind of go to conferences, um, I found that no, everybody thinks they come from a non-traditional background um, and there doesn't seem to be like one traditional background. Maybe, maybe this will change in the future, but um, there doesn't seem to be one background that people come from. Um, So my background is primarily in the social sciences um, and I actually got introduced to statistics and um, kind of the applied um, statistics in back in high school. Um, and I was introduced to SPSS, which um, is not open source, but was a statistical computing software um, by, is it, is it IBM? IBM has their version anyway, um, back in high school and kind of learned a bit about experimental design and statistical validation and kind of got really hooked on, um, oh, there are ways that I can ask questions and kind of do hypothesis testing and validate them. Um, And that just seemed like a dream job to me. So that was back in 2008, 2009, um, and a a few years before, uh, I guess, like the term data science really took off. Um, And yeah, I I knew when I, I I think the preferred term at the time was like quant. So (laughs) uh, when I graduated college, I was like, okay, I know I want to go into some sort of quantitative role, um, I would like the data I work with to be a little more human oriented than say like finance data. Um, what is there out there for me? Um, and I think at the time, a lot of a lot of the data roles were still kind of back of office. They stuck you in a closet and you crunch numbers and they're like, just give me the numbers and go. <laughs> so when data science as it exists today, I think has evolved a lot. So that it's a lot more, um, you're essentially a partner and trying to help people choose the right statistical approach, kind of asking and answer questions. So it's a lot of the core things that made me fall in love with the field um, like a decade ago, but it's a lot more um, collaborative, which I value in a job and just in life. Um, Yeah. So to me, that's kind of my entry point into it. But the the biggest thing that I've noticed and always find funny is whenever um, people talk about how they got into data science, it's always like, yeah, I come from a non-traditional background. And
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I, I... I guess in a way that's that's somewhat to be expected, right, given the fact that data science is this really new and nascent field. I mean, it's only been around even as a term for like under a decade.
1: Yeah, I think it's um, it's funny because I, I think now data science programs are starting to emerge. So the college that I went to was actually – um, one of the first colleges, I think, to create like a data science program and they had initially called it like passion based statistics, um, which I really loved that term of it. It was driven by you spend um, the semester choosing a research question and you really dive into it and use applied statistics to understand that question in different ways. Um, and it it turned into the first kind of um, big college, I guess, to have uh, data science as a minor. And I think a lot of colleges still don't have data science as a major, and a lot of places it's still a minor. Um, So it's funny, because I think even people with data science majors, right, a lot of companies will be like, well, it's not, we don't quite know that much about those programs yet. So they come from a non-traditional background as well.
0: (laughs) That's right. Well, there's something to be said for specializing in a non-data science area initially, and having some kind of background almost the weirder the more exotic the better because you then gain an appreciation for the sort of subject matter expertise that it takes to formulate interesting questions in another area because when you ultimately are going to work at a company like it's more important to be good at at thinking of the right questions to ask than anything else because otherwise you're spinning your wheels and learning like if you if you really master one sub discipline if you get really good at at earth sciences, at sociology, at what have you, you understand just how how complex a given area can be once you crack it open. And that understanding can then transfer over into other fields when you can treat them with a little bit more respect and then use the tools of statistics and data science that you've learned. Is, is that Does that mesh with your experience?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I think the other thing that I really love too as a hiring manager is when you have a team that comes from different disciplines and different backgrounds, you just have a stronger team. Um, like if you have a team of of only people who came out of statistics programs or only people who came out of like comsci programs, you're not going to have people who are thinking about things from different angles. Um, and that that kind of like brainstorming process, that collaborative brainstorming process is so important. Um, for strong data science teams where you have, um, I, I like to think about it as like the, it's impossible for one person to be an expert in like everything of both like breadth and depth, right? So um, if you have people from different backgrounds and you're kind of supplementing um, each other's gaps in knowledge and kind of learning from each other, um, and the way that I think about it is you're collective, collectively building a really strong like repository of knowledge um, with this like team of people, and it just makes for a better learning environment when like you have someone on I, on my team at data science or at um code academy, for example, um, we have a, like half the team came from larger tech companies. And then we have a few people who who transferred from um internally from other teams who then have like a lot of great knowledge about Code Academy as a product. Um and then we have some people who are stronger on like the engineering and programming side. Um and one person in particular, who's like a huge Bayesian statistics nerd. Um, so you have like a, a lot of, it. I really love when they kind of are like talking and discussing how to approach a project from like different angles, because they all have like such unique experiences. Um, and it just makes for a stronger team and like, yeah, better better work environment for everyone involved.
0: So you're, uh, you mentioned of course, Code Academy, and there a big focus, of course, is going to be helping people to learn. Can you speak at all to some of the insights you might have developed by looking at that kind of data in terms of how people either learn or struggle to learn under what circumstances? Like,
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, so I... Most of my background or almost all of my work experience has been in like consumer-facing products or consumer-facing companies, um, just because that is the type of data that excites me. Um, and so much of the job is kind of asking and answering the right questions about the data and having that curiosity. Um, um, so to me personally, that was really important um, when I, I was trying to think about where to go next. Um, and I think for code Academy, it's, it's there's such a human element to the data, um, as you said, of learning, like, what helps people learn, what helps keep people motivated. Um, and um, there are a few interesting that, things that we found, I, I think, for one, so I'll break it out into two. So one is kind of the, <clears throat> the, like, learning piece of, like, how do people learn, what keeps people motivated? And the other piece is, like, what are people learning and what is the future of technology and the future of, like, work? um and those are two fascinating spaces that we see a lot in the data so I think on the what what um how do people learn and what keeps people motivated um on that piece it's actually really fascinating because I in many ways I feel like I've been building the same uh, models and arriving at the same findings um almost every place that I've worked uh so for example at um Code Academy, we are a subscription product. So we do survival modeling to say who is more likely to retain or stay in the platform or keep learning. Um and two jobs before that. So before Code Academy, I was at JetBlue, but before that, I worked for a gym um, or a chain of gyms called New York Sports Clubs. Um, we also had have different or had different locations around um primarily the east coast of the US, but it was a lot of the same findings where it's like, okay, um, people who binge content, uh, that holds less value than someone who is a regular learner. So habit building is good. Um, but kind of the short bursts of activity, um, uh, doesn't really do much for kind of long-term learning and retention of knowledge or, um, kind of product stickiness, if you think about it through a, um, business perspective. Um, so that was really interesting to me. I, I think the other piece that we found, um, that was really fascinating and, um, it's funny because the the data supports it, but and when you think about it, it's like, oh, I probably could have guessed this. Um, is that if the last thing somebody gets wrong um, on the on Codecademy, um, especially in the in their early days, so in their first few days or just learning how to code, if they get something wrong, they're less likely to come back to Codecademy, so they're more likely right. to give up. So it's how do we keep people motivated? And um, it kind of makes sense. Like I think I've been through that myself. Of um, it's really demoralizing when you get something wrong and, um, it's really tough. So kind of getting past that hurdle of, okay, I'm making a mistake. Um, how do I motivate myself to come back and how do we kind of, um, help you or help our learners understand that like mistakes happen. And, you know, even the experts, like kind of we're in the spot at some point that you're in, um, on that learning curve. Um, so yeah, those are two really interesting findings that, um, I, I think we've, we found at Code Academy, but it's—I mostly find it fascinating that I—I see, I've basically arrived at the same finding uh, um, for the past ten years at various different companies.
0: It's a really interesting problem space too, because I mean, there's so much. There was so much talking about uh, gamification in like the mid 2010s. You know, people talking about, oh, we'll you know, we'll slap a point system on this uh, on this product, and then people will want to to treat it as a toy and or as a game because there are points involved and then people kind of realize okay well that's not that's not quite good enough and there's a whole science <laughs> to gamification now but usually that science is deployed in a direction that's maybe ethically a little bit more questionable getting people yeah. addicted to their twitter feeds you know getting people to engage in these short-term limbic games rather than building long-term value that pays off in the long run are there any principles any like gamification principles that you found particularly useful in terms of keeping people engaged i'm wondering here in particular uh, things that might be helpful to the average person as they engage on their own learning path to try to stay motivated in the short term.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's interesting because um, the term gamification is used a lot likely like in the tech industry as a whole, um, but we actually don't use it that often at Codecademy. I think when we refer to it, we kind of call it habit building a little bit more, Um just because we one of the values of Code Academy is we're providing a platform that has a lot of flexibility. So if you look at our learners, a lot of people are already employed and they're likely looking for like a like how to pivot a, a little bit into a different direction. So I'm I'm employed. It's really hard for me to use this app every single day. Um, but there's like an ideal um, rate, I guess which like I, I want to come back to Code Academy and I kind of need a little bit of guidance in trying to figure out how to both challenge myself a little bit on that, but also like be able to fit it into my life and my schedule. And we hear from a lot of people who are working parents um, who are taking Code academy courses where they come to us because it's, it's a flexible pl- platform. Um, so we're really focused on that habit building piece that also accommodates, I guess, like someone's lifestyle and someone's uh, schedule and goals so certain features that we've come up with are more on like how do we facilitate that goal building so we've done a fair amount of um um we, we do have like our version of streaks but instead of at a lot of companies it's kind of like um like they, they just encourage you to do like daily streaks so um use our platform as much as possible for us we we've kind of done some experimentation around um streaks, but some sort of, including some sort of like input from the user or the learner on like, what is your ideal goal? Um, So for some people, it might be daily, right? Uh, Maybe you're, you just graduated from college and you have, your time is a lot more flexible. Um, But for some people, they want to be able to set it to like a week. And then maybe we we might nudge you a bit to say like, oh, okay, it seems like you might benefit from um, taking these few, things are, are coming back at this point but um we try not to be too hyper fixated on gamification if that makes sense um because you're right of at a certain point if we think about it if we think about it too much as like a game we're learning as a game um it can come off as like a little bit manipulative and also maybe be a detriment to how people learn um like you might be reshaping their habits in a way that isn't beneficial to help people actually learn and retain information.
0: Yeah, I guess we the, the uh, 2010s have been a testament to the dangers of sacrificing everything at the altar of engagement.
1: Right.
0: You're asking users to say, okay, here's who I want to be in this much time, or this is what my timeline is, this is how I'd love to see myself in the future, and then translating that into like a short-term set of incentives. So we expect you to be on the platform, you know, this many days a week or, or for this many weeks in a row, something like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think we found that in our research, too, as well as um, as well to su- data to support that. So when we look at like who is uh, more likely to retain or who is more likely to feel like they achieve their goal um, and basically who is a more effective learner, the rate of activity tends to be if you look at that um, curve, it's not. It's not like linear of like the more content that you consume or the more courses that you take um, or the faster that you get through the courses, the, the better of a learner you are. Um, there's actually kind of this sweet spot of if you um, are not learning if you're so if you're not learning how to program and practicing at least like um, every once in a while, right, then you're not going to pick up on that information. Um, but at the same time, if you kind of go through it too quickly or go through too much too quickly, then you can forget it pretty quickly as well. <laughs> um, so there's this kind of sweet spot in the middle that we try to. Um, we've thought about in different ways how to encourage people to think about that. It's a it's a tough problem because humans are are different, right? So that that sweet spot might be slightly different per per person or per segment of user. Um, but I think it, it it kind of holds true, and it it makes sense when you think about it logically too. Of like, I, there is a general kind of range of like if you go above this amount, um, you're likely going to forget everything that you learned. And uh, yeah, I I kind of think about it as like cramming back in school, right? When you cram for a test. (laughs) Um, I've been in that trap many times. (laughs) Um, If you cram for a test versus kind of, you know, um, making sure you're studying like every night a little bit, um, and basically building regular good habits, um, you're more likely to ace that test than if you kind of Forget about it, and then cram every few weeks whenever that um, midterm is coming up.
0: That makes makes perfect sense. And, and now, one big part of, of data science and data analytics, of course, is as well defining metrics. And I think this whole conversation is sort of implied every time you say, you know, we um, we know that users who behave like X tend to do better. That is presumably measured against some metric, and the process of identifying that metric is such a big part of the data science, data analytics exercise. Can you share some insights into what kinds of metrics did you end up settling on, or have you settled on, and what was the thought process that went into defining those metrics?
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's this is true at like every single company virtually. So I, th- I think even. Um, I think a lot of people when they think about data science teams um kind of like the ai and like ml like applications get the most press um and is the most buzzy but if you look at i think um airbnb had a good article about this where they have like um data scientists working on analytics as a track inference as a track and algorithms as a track um and i the vast majority of their data scientists i think like 70 or 80 percent work in analytics or inference because um, if you think about it, the vast majority of business problems are gonna be in those two domains. Um there's we I, I found this in my own career. Like it it's it's pretty rare to come across a data set that's model grade um of all the data that could exist. Um but yeah, so metrics definition. Um it's it's tough. I, I would say it's one of those things that seems like it should be fairly easy, but in reality it ends up being a lot harder than you would assume it to be. Um, There's a lot of, there's this like joke in data science, where it's like 99% of data science is choosing the right denominator. Um, And I think this is true for metrics. um, But if you think about it, it's also true for like machine learning, right? Defining and choosing the right sample population um, makes for like accurate science. If you, if you choose a wrong sample population, then everything that you do after that can be skewed or become farce. Um, yeah, as far as metrics themselves, uh, this is something that we still, to be honest, I, I think are trying to think about how to refine um, every day. Um, I think we have a lot of, of like, core. um, I guess you could say like core engagement metrics that could probably you can probably find whether you're at Code Academy or at Facebook or um or Spotify, right? Of like what rate of usage is there per user, um, as well as like overall usage. So there's typically kind of overall volume, um, and then a rate per user to kind of control for people who might be um, out outliers, for example. Um but yeah, I think the piece that we haven't quite refined yet is how do we come up with a metric that is a little bit more, um the, the pedagogical piece, I guess, is the thing that's hard to quantify um, of kind of going back to what we were saying before of like everyone has slightly different learning goals. Um, therefore, when when you think about things like um, like churn at some other business, right? It might be like churn is bad. Um, but for us, sometimes like churn is good of like somebody left Code academy because they accomplished their goal. um, so how do we how do we quantify that? um, and I, I think that's the thing that's that we're still struggling with and trying to refine of um kind of that quantitative and qualitative at the same time and trying to strike a right balance of we created this metric and this number that gives us a good signal while taking in that human kind of element and all these other considerations that are hard to to put into concrete numbers
0: well and maybe this speaks to an interaction that i guess often gets overlooked or sometimes ignored and that's the idea of the interaction between the data science team and the product team you know when you're looking at you know in 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 your case if you're like oh we're we're trying to measure the pedagogical value of our tool rather than just engagement we already have have numbers that we're collecting for engagement like on the product side that might imply a different type of of uh, prompt that users are, f- are faced with at some point or some kind of integration that allows you to collect some sort of feedback about how subjectively satisfied the user is with their experience, you know, did they complete the the learning objectives that they wanted? But I guess more broadly in general, you know, data science does involve that interaction between the product team and the data collection and analysis team. Are, what what does that interaction look like at Code Academy are, are you integrated with the product team do you speak with them a lot are you dealing with the same product managers or
1: yeah I, I laugh when you say do you speak with them a lot because I'm like yeah I, I talk to them like every day but <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I remember when I started at Codecademy there was like um one p.m. in particular where I hadn't started working there yet and then people just coming kept coming up to you and were like or kept coming up, up to me and we're like "Brian, so excited that you're starting and then on my first day um this p.m. Brian was like we're gonna be best friends. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> this. This is kind of terrifying, but uh, I'm, I'm glad that you, you know, value like data science. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because like I, I think I mentioned earlier, but I, I think in the past, um, I, I've kind of I've been working in this field for a while now, and I, I think when I first started. A lot of quantitative roles were very back of office, so you're essentially seen as like support staff. Of uh, we just want you to give us this number, and that we don't really want your input. Like, um, which I think is really challenging, right? Because when you work in quantitative roles, I think um, statisticians, right? Your your job is kind of like to be professional hedgers. Yep. <laughs> of your your a big piece. So much of your job is conveying uncertainty the right way. Um, so. I think people think about numbers as like absolute, but that's never true, right? There's there's a range of possibilities. And at best we can say like, we're fairly confident that um, this will happen. Um, but there's always like all this fine print that we want to convey. And when we hand off those numbers, I think we're really worried that people will misinterpret it or weaponize like those numbers in some way. Um, so there's always that, that fear. Um, so I really appreciate working at um, Codecademy. And I think kind of seeing the general... Um, trend kind of happening in in data science as a whole and quantitative roles as a whole of we're kind of being um, included a lot more <laughs> in those decision-making processes of a lot of people talk about data-driven decision-making but uh, I think for a long time I, I didn't find that to be true at a lot of companies of data teams are still not well integrated in that process um, and I'm really really happy to see that starting to change um, and kind of this rise and um, I, I kind of something that I found fa- fascinating this year is like I feel like causal inference and in statistics is like having a moment. Um, I don't know if this has come up with other people you've spoken to, but um, I mean, yes, first actually, there yeah. was yeah, there was like the elections piece where people were already like, "Wow, like I love five thirty eight, and I love like trying to understand what might happen in this election." Um, and then like to, I, I remember I was watching. um, The Iowa results, I think, Um, and they panned the camera panned to a room of data scientists to like get their input, and I'd never seen that before. Like, I'd never seen someone who worked like in my job on like a news broadcast. Right, like in that way, um, where like they were essentially like celebrities. Like, if you think about people like Nate Silver, right, like they're they're celebrities right now. Yeah, and then I I think the other, uh, that was already happening. And then I I think what happened next is like with COVID, right? I think there was even more um, exposure um, to the general public. Exposure is a bad word for COVID. But (laughs) there was more um, people, I think, got a little bit more of an insight to the work that statisticians do and data scientists do. And really, I think, understood like, oh, this job is really hard. um, And it turns out science isn't fact, right? Like in school, science is kind of presented as fact of like it's true or it's false it's um we validate it or we don't um but anyone who's worked in science kind of knows that's that's not true right there's a lot of uncertainty um, within that and um there's a great soundbite by governor um cuomo (laughs) um where I, i don't know if you heard this but he's kind of at one of his press conferences and he's like you You guys think i'm not giving you any answers you should talk to these statisticians they won't tell me anything (laughs) and yeah i I think that just kind of really um i've never felt more comfortable i i I guess kind of like conveying uncertainty than i do like right now because i think um people are just seeing like oh okay yeah it's really hard to build a model that predicts the future um, and kind of COVID and un- unemployment and all of all of that is kind of helping people understand that um, and get a little bit of insight into this type of world or the industry.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, those moments where humanity makes contact with a tail risk that all of a sudden becomes materialized has have a way of sort of focusing the mind and making people realize like, yeah, you know, those those models that said there was a 5% chance of a pandemic every year for the last X years you know that that was 5% that that's a 5% chance of a, of this real thing happening which is one of the most profoundly counterintuitive things about statistics to begin with because it's all about counterfactuals like human beings are not great at dealing with like hypothetical situations that may arise but aren't in front of us right now and well maybe this ties back in in a weird way to code academy itself in the sense that um you're you're kind of trying to Sell someone on the hypothetical prospect that they will become someone more valuable by completing a series of tasks. It's not a material thing. You're trying to make a counterfactual more real. One of the things you mentioned a, a little while back now in your previous answer is you said something about weaponizing statistics, in particular mm. in some of these environments that are, let's say, maybe a little less techy, maybe the way data science was a few a few years ago. Can you can you go into a little bit more detail? Like what do you mean by weaponizing statistics? Because I think that might be an interesting thing to explore.
1: Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, um what what what's that book that's like um, How to Lie with Statistics? Probably it How to Lie with Statistics, yeah, such a New York New York Times bestseller. Um but yeah, I think um I think this is kind of I I The other thing I mentioned was like um, the return, I guess, of like causal inference of, um, I think causal inference is like having a moment. But I think within that also, there's kind of this, um, uh, this gets kind of niche in the data science world, but there's been a little bit of a downfall of like the (laughs) p-value approach um, and kind of a rise of like Bayesian statistics in particular, where um, and a return to uh, kind of not looking at absolutes. So when we talk about p-values and like, 95% confidence, like, why 95%, right? Like, it's, if you think about it, it's pretty arbitrary. Um,
0: It also, it also guarantees, right, that 5% of, like, if if you have a p-value of 0.05, like, that means that 5% of the time, if you have 20 experiments, each with a p-value of 0.05, you've got one dud result in there, at least, or not at least, but statistically.
1: Right, yeah, yeah, like, like, let's say you're, um, I don't know, that 5% might be fine if you work at a place like Codecademy and you're redesigning a landing page or something like that. Right. But that 5% is probably not fine. If you work for NASA and you're trying to build a model that predicts the likelihood of like, like systemic failure. Um, Yeah. so it's, it, it varies a lot of like that. Yeah. You can't operate in absolutes, but I, I think a lot of what I've seen is, um, so I think for for the last few years, um, a lot of people started automating a lot of like um, statistical inference work and you could buy things like Optimizely and kind of have out of the box A-B testing. Um, and sure it worked, you got numbers, but like uh, there's the interpretation piece was kind of lost when you just worked in absolutes of like, um, there are a lot of companies that for example have such low web traffic that they theoretically can never achieve significance at like the 95% level. Um, and that might be lost to someone who doesn't understand it as a concept. Um, and I, I guess on the weaponizing side, the um, I, I'll talk about a little bit more in the business setting. Um, although I, I do think we see some parallels in kind of lying with statistics kind of in the world right now with COVID. And you know, if you don't test people, then then, uh, if you don't test people for COVID, then yeah, you you get uh, fewer people with COVID um, in your data. And that's one way that you can weaponize numbers and statistics and lie with um, numbers. Um, Where sure, you might have a lower rate of people um, with COVID in your reports, but it could be because you're not testing people. Um, I think in the business setting, where you see it a lot is this concept of like p-value hacking. Um, Honestly, you see it in academics as well. Um, of there are a lot of ways where you can cherry pick your statistics to kind of get the significance that you want. Um, and that that's like bad science, right? And um, I, I think p-values and working in absolutes and kind of uh, a lot of traditional statistical approaches, um, I don't want to say like encourage that, but can can easily facilitate that type of thinking of, okay, like, can I keep running? Um different statistical tests until I get like um significance and you see that happening a lot both in industry and academia unfortunately um and yeah it's it's something that i I've been seeing more and more, but I've also been seeing more um i guess like critiques and kind of visibility or people making that problem visible
0: yeah it's it's interesting i I think one of the things that um uh that maybe ought to be explored a little more is the similarity between data science and journalism in the sense that your responsibility as a data science well your responsibility as a journalist is to look at the world in principle which is a very high dimensional place that no one no one can possibly have the time or the expertise to dive into the nitty-gritty details of whatever story needs to be reported on and then you as the journalist need to dimensionality reduce that story to a latent representation that you can then feed to somebody who will actually understand and act on that story um, a data scientist in a way is doing something similar. And to some degree, I guess you could argue the failure modes of both are going to overlap quite a bit. Uh, data science, just like journalism, data science can become uh, political in the, in the context of an office even, where you know if you have a manager who really wants to gun for a particular A-B test or who believes in a feature, um, you know, having that pressure, having that person breathing down your neck, maybe you run a certain kind of A-B test that in the back of your mind, you know there's a bias towards a certain kind of outcome. Um, I mean, is, is that part of what you've perhaps seen in other other settings, most likely not not Code Academy, of course, but I'm thinking here back to you know, maybe your back office days doing stats for <laughs> uh, behind the scenes?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it can happen anywhere. And I, I think even like data scientists, right? Like, of course, we're prone to bias as well. We're human. So if I see like a hardworking team of like coworkers at Codecademy working on this new feature that they're really excited about. Part of me really wants it to do well as, right. you know, like well like like them. So um, I, I think it's it's like a fallacy to think that like um, people in quantitative roles like don't have their own biases. Um, there are a lot of conversations right now about kind of bias and technology and bias and data science as well. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think about my job and kind of the job of data scientists as, uh, and I think this will become increasing, increasingly common um, with the automation of a lot of the implementation um, piece is that our job is essentially assessing the problem and choosing the right approach and kind of preventing um, bad takes <laughs> on numbers and bad takes on statistics and basically preventing bad science. So, um, so much of our job is, or so much of my job in recent years, I think has become a lot more catered towards like that education piece of partnering with like a product manager or um, um, yeah, that status who's partnering with Governor Cuomo to like help them understand what do the numbers say and how much confidence do we have in these numbers and how can I make sure you kind of have all the information you need and understand all the different angles and approaches of looking at this to make the right decision. and yeah, it's a, it's a tough job. I think a lot of it, um, a lot of it will increasingly kind of go in that direction. Um, if I think about how long it took me 10 years ago to build a model in SPSS or yeah. Stata, um, versus like, I can do that with one line of code now and like our Python, um, a lot of the focus now is less on the implementation piece. Cause it's, it's become automated and it's so much faster. And it's more on the interpretation and um, the thinking and the explanation and um, education piece. So um, I really love it personally. Um, I, I didn't I didn't like sitting there waiting all day for like my code to run. Um, I love that I can do things with one line of code instead of like 200. <laughs> so I, I think it's great. But I think a lot of people um, are, are still kind of, a lot of people are still trying to to figure out their role as data scientists and their role kind of in that partnership.
0: Right. And actually, this is a, a theme that's come up a lot. Every time I, I do one of these interviews, I get one of two responses when I ask the question, where is the field going? People will either say uh, what you just said in terms of like, yeah, it's going in the direction of value and communication, exploration, experimentation, essentially the almost the scientific philosophy of these experiments, and then the other answer is, well, it's going into this more deeply technical engineering direction where everything is about deployment and DevOps and software engineering. And it's sort, of, it's sort of interesting to see that forking out as what was once this more integrated data science role starts to get separated out into tool building and then tool exploitation, which it feels like a natural kind of equilibrium point going forward. I wonder, I mean, I wonder if we're going to keep calling that all of that data science or if we're going to evolve a term for the sort of like more business focused data science uh, problem set.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I, this is something that I, that I feel like this conversation comes up all the time of like job titles and, um, you know, what's the difference between like an analyst versus a data scientist versus like an ML engineer. Um, and I, I don't love these conversations because I think it causes more like alienation than good. Um, and I, I think honestly, the people who care the most are um, the people who don't work in the industry. Um, and the people that ends up hurting most are the people who are trying to break into the industry. Um, I, I think the thing that I'll say is I, I, think titles are relative of, um, when I worked at JetBlue, for example, they didn't use a uh, title, um, data science scientists at all. They only started using it. I think maybe like two or three years after I left. Um, but yeah, they, they you know, JetBlue is traditionally like an operations research background or airlines are. So um, they use the term like engineer, where if you think about, um, I, I saw like, uh, I actually got called in to look at like some JDs to help them assess like, okay, we're thinking about building our first data science team. Do these job descriptions look right? Um, and they had like, for something that you and I might call like a data scientist, they had that role listed as data engineer. <laughs> um, which I found really funny, but I think just that was when it kind of really clicked for me like, oh, job titles are so relative. Um, and yeah, I, I think we're seeing this rise of like, um, I, I'm, I'm curious to see how it'll change as well, um, but I think we're seeing this rise of like kind of, um, I've seen it referred to as like data science generalist roles or full stack data science, um, where you're kind of expected to know um, a little bit more at a high level, um, the entire end-to-end process of like a data science project. So you're expected to essentially kind of facilitate between like the people who might work on um, um, ETLs or kind of the data loading. So the data engineers um, to, um, I I think a lot of... a lot of data scientists are, will admittedly say, including myself, um, I'm a much better statistician than I am like a software engineer or a programmer. <laughs> so uh, kind of the productionizing code piece is usually handed off at a lot of places by data scientists might work on the research piece, but then hand it off to someone to help them figure out how to make it run and run fast.
0: Um, well, and depending on company size too, right? Because I mean, you have experience working at both smaller and and larger companies, uh, like is how how much of a part of the story is is that the specialization that comes with company size?
1: Yeah, I think that's true as well. Um, of definitely, I, I think a lot of people. Um, this is true both in data science and in other industries as well. Of uh, when you go to bigger companies, you essentially work on the same problem um, for a very long time, and it's it becomes very uh, siloed. So when I worked at JetBlue, um, I was there for three years, and I was working on um, like their pricing algorithms, So ticket pricing. Uh, so kind of those questions of, um, how do we sell the right seat to the right person at the right time? And it was essentially supply and demand, um, and price optimization. Um, and I, I think that that sounded really interesting to me going into it, but by the end of three years, right, it, it kind of got a little bit boring and less interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I wanted to go somewhere, um, like code Academy where I could, um, Kind of work on a more a broader range of problems, um, and kind of see the the life cycle of a data science project from end to end, and kind of have um, more autonomy over the where that project goes and the direction of that and how data science is applied at the organization. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, I think there's a time and a place for for each kind of. I I strongly encourage people to kind of think about working at big companies or small companies kind of depending on what they're looking for. Um, And I think it's fine if your interests and skills and needs kind of change and develop over time, like over the course of your career, that's natural. Of Sometimes, right, working on really specializing and working on that niche problem might be what you're looking for, Of like you really want to dive deep and um, that kind of ownership piece And working on things end to end is not something that you're looking for. Um, But after a while, you might be like, oh, actually, you know, I'm seeing um, people work on like this other problem. And I really want to be able to kind of dive into different areas instead of focusing on one. Um, And you might kind of do what I did and move to a place like Codecademy. And for a few years, I've been there three years now um, and work on a wider range of problems of, um, I really loved it of, I, I kind of, I mentioned when I worked for JetBlue, uh, a lot of the work was a lot more around price optimization. And um, when I went to Codecademy pretty quickly, I was able to work on kind of um, experimentation and causal inference. Um, There were like some forecast models that we were able to build with like um, machine learning on on some of our older data. So we had like 10 years of data with 45 million learners, right? There's some trends in there that you can, or that we were able to model out. Um, we also launched like on platform search and I got to do like NLP and like network and graph modeling with those terms. Um, and there was such a wide range of like data, uh, not just problems with data to work on versus at JetBlue, I was working on essentially just like, um, supply and demand problems. It was a lot of how, um, at, in, in the airline industry, you call it load factor. So how full is a plane? Um, what is the average like, ticket price and kind of optimizing for both of those, um, yeah, so I, I kind of, I, um, I think the question of like, should I work at a bigger company or a smaller company comes up a lot? Um, and I don't think there's one right answer for everyone. Um, I think there are nuances for each and it kind of trade-offs for each and it depends on what you're looking for and what you're interested in.
0: I like the note of, of uh, flexibility on the career side and the, uh, the technical sort of focus side Partly because, you know, this is one of the things that keeps coming up when I talk to more experienced data scientists is they'll say, you know, you show up in a job, uh, maybe the job title is data analyst or maybe it's data scientist. But at the end of the day, if it's one of your first jobs in your career, part of your responsibility is to get in there. Start looking around and notice the things that other people are working on, too, to figure out what are you actually drawn towards? What are you actually interested in? You may think you want to be a data scientist or a data engineer or a machine learning engineer. But maybe after being exposed to the full problem space, you develop an interest in a completely different subspace and you find yourself drifting towards data analytics or or something else besides what you came in uh, looking for. And, um, and I guess that, that meshes well with what, what you were saying about the job description and how you have this data science role that was labeled as a data engineering role. The people putting these descriptions together sometimes haven't thought through really what the job title is and so they're, in a way, going to enforce that flexibility on candidates who come in and just sort of realize, oh, wow, this is like, this is not what I wanted to be doing day to day, or or this surprisingly is what I wanted to be doing day to day. Is that, has that been like part of your experience or hopping from job description to job description as you go?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think for me, um, if you look at my like resume, right, so much of it reflects the rise of like data science as the title of... Uh, I don't know, sometimes you see job postings and it's like, I'm looking for a data scientist with like minimum 10 years as a data scientist, like in data science roles with the title data scientist. (laughs) Um, And that's like not, that's basically impossible. It's maybe becoming more possible as like um, more time passes. But yeah, the, the term data scientist hasn't existed for that long. Um, So it's, I think, especially as a hiring manager, this is something that I always think about, especially when you're thinking about um, diversity and inclusion and how to make sure you're building like diverse teams is not to become hyper fixated on titles and looking at people's job experiences and their backgrounds and kind of um, their ability instead of just um, job titles. Um, But yeah, I I think um, essentially, I I, I think the, the big thing is like, a lot of these conversations end up causing a lot of imposter syndrome. Um, And this type of like gatekeeping of like titles isn't productive. Um, I'm I'm glad to see it shifting away from that. I do think a lot of companies um, have kind of done away with the analyst title altogether and kind of rolled a lot of things under um, kind of a centralized data science team in order to make sure um, there isn't this, um, what, what do you call it? I guess like inherent, uh, I'm trying to think of the right term, um, like different tiers of data science, like not it not being seen in that way of, I, th- I think, for example, um, machine learning engineers might get like the most press and kind of, um, that's the most, um, they get the most press when it comes to data science, but a, a lot of people might see more value in like the day to day work that um, people do in like data visualization of so sometimes that chart can tell you more than like some model. Or decreasing the <laughs> or increasing the precision of some like model by like 0.5 percent right might yeah. not carry as much weight as like oh we got you this data visualization that helps you understand this like business problem at the right time and this kind of has more business value um so yeah i, I think I, i'm seeing that gatekeeping kind of change of i would say um Maybe it was true like 10 years ago that the vast majority of data scientists were just people who worked in tech and had PhDs. Um, but I think more and more that's changing of um, companies like, um, like uh, I'm trying to think of a good one recently. I think Lyft recently talked about this. They got rid of the analyst title and rolled everyone under um, data scientists. Um, Etsy, I think, did the same. Facebook did the same. Um, and a lot of smaller companies, therefore, like, have to follow suit. Um, So I'm really glad. I I think it's kind of helping with um, doing away with the gatekeeping is just better for everyone involved. Um, Kind of going back to, like, that diversity of thought ends up being really um, important on data science teams. So if you have a team of just PhDs, right, um, I, I think there's this, like, stereotype that like, oh, PhD students aren't that great at like business communication because they don't have ex- exposure to that. So maybe like rolling people who would traditionally be in analyst roles under the same umbrella means people can learn from each other.
0: I suppose at the end of the day too, the um, this speaks to the importance if you're job seeking of of being drawn more by job descriptions rather than job titles, because that's where, that's where all the, the meat is hiding. That's where all the insights about your day-to-day work are hiding,
1: right? I think titles and credentials, unfortunately, do matter um especially if you come from some sort of marginalized background um so i I don't think titles don't matter at all and uh, but i think um let's say you're trying to get your foot in the door and getting that um there's been an influx of people kind of applying to these entry-level data science roles you have like people graduating from programs um grad school programs boot camp programs um making transitions from other jobs so it's it's really competitive so let's say you it you can't find or you're having trouble finding that first entry-level data science job, it might be beneficial to look at other alternative job titles. Um, But yeah, I I do think job titles are really important. and I think the onus is on employers, honestly, to value and kind of really think about um, making sure job titles are reflective of the job that you're doing. I've seen a lot of jobs where, you know, your, your job title is, like, analyst, but you're expected to, like, run models, and that seems, like, ridiculous to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I guess there's, because um, I've seen sort of the flip side of that as well, where it, it seems as though some companies uh, take a um, s- somewhat, in some cases, downright cynical view of taking jobs that are, say, analytics-focused that don't involve model building. Um, they know that people are excited about model building. And so they'll they'll slap the data science title on those jobs in order to suck people into applying to them because they get a higher caliber of applicant. And um and I like I think there are two sides to the coin where you know you can have false positives and false negatives and they have different impacts on job seekers. The disappointment that comes from realizing only too late that what you thought was a data science role or something that you were really passionate about, or, or that you thought you were passionate about. Because as we've discussed, right, you're Constantly in this process of discovery, you might learn that you're really, you know, into whatever you're you're doing. Um, but but that aspect, especially especially in when it comes to recruitment and the early stages of that um, sort of a candidate onboarding funnel, uh, I, I think is something that the field's still figuring out how to deal with. But uh, to some degree, so job descriptions, I think, being specific and job titles being specific, distinguishing between. You know, you're going to be doing visualization and you're going to be doing modeling. Um, do you see value in, in that respect?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the the philosophy that I follow and the one that I kind of encourage other companies to do as well um, is, is kind of one where you have a centralized data science organization so that you can all learn from each other. It's never a great feeling to work at places where teams are too siloed, comma, Whatever skill they're looking for, so data scientist, comma, analytics, data scientist, comma inference, data scientist, comma um, like NLP. So it it's um, it kind of gives you a sense of like here is the specialty that we're looking for, um, but we still value you equally as a person who's working on like a, um, uh, on, a on a research problem.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So you, you sort of like you're you're giving the title, and then you're you're adding a qualifier, which is sort of an interesting way to to um, navigate that that landscape.
1: Yeah, like if you think about software engineering, you would never say I'm hiring a software engineer and not at least specify like, okay, we're we're kind of uh, looking a little bit more for like front end or back end or yeah, um, yeah. There's full stack, but then you would say like I'm looking for a full stack engineer. Where it's uh, similar for us, we're we're a small company, so we're looking for generalist. So we'll we'll kind of say um or in a lot of the job postings we'll we'll put that we're looking for like a generalist role. Um specific about like the types of skills you're looking for and the expectations is super important um to make sure it's a good mutual fit. Um at the same time though I, I will say I think there's a the hyper fixation on like I you're only a data scientist if you work on modeling problems and I only want to work on it's just unrealistic and um, I'm sure you're, you've heard this on your podcast time and time again from a lot of different people, but um, I think uh, Roger Peng on on their podcast also talked about this as well, where it's like, well, if data cleaning is like 90% of the job, then isn't it just the job? Um, and I, I think that's something that we have to remember too. Of, um, whatever helps you kind of feel a little bit better about it. I, I think um, going back to that common joke of 99% of data science is choosing the right denominator, right? Um, It's kind of a silly way of thinking about it. And, um, but I think when you're really thinking about it, right, when you're choosing the right denominator for either um, some metric in analytics work or um, some data set for like training a machine learning model, right? You're trying to define the right sample population and that's tough, like that is science. Um, So I, I think that, um, I'm seeing companies value that work more and more of like the data science work and the thinking piece over just the implementation and optimization of like how fast is your code run piece. Um, and yeah, I, I love it. I'm, I'm super happy about it. <laughs> um, I, I think, um, yeah, if our job was just like optimizing code to run fast then we should likely just be software engineers instead of, <laughs> instead of data scientists, um, but yeah.
0: Interesting. Well, thanks so much. I mean, I think the, the, um, the discussion around job titles is so important just because it's it's such a big part of so many people's thought process as they try to navigate their own job search or, or once they're in their career, trying to optimize for what that next step's going to look like. Uh, so I really appreciate your, your insights into that, your insights into how things are working at, at Code Academy and uh, the metrics you're choosing, all that stuff. I think that's really, really important for people to understand what life looks like under the hood at some of these uh some of these organizations. So thanks so much for making the time, Kat. Do you have a Twitter handle that you can share so people can follow you?
1: Um yeah, I, I think also I'll I'll make a quick plug for um data science Twitter as a whole, um and more generally the data science community. So I, I think um I know a lot of people follow towards data science who are either currently data scientists looking to continue growing in their careers or people looking to break into data science. Um, And the biggest thing that has really helped my career is taking advantage of the data science community. Um, I think it's a really like kind and uh, open network of people who just want to share and learn with each other. Um, Data science Twitter is great. Um, my my Twitter handle, handle is Catherine, C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-C-H. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, one of the biggest tips I have for people, um, I heard it from someone else, but I can't remember who it was. I, I heard it from someone on Data Science Twitter, I'm pretty sure. But the best tip that I heard um, kind of in learning and propelling your career is follow kind experts. Um, so if you think about some of the biggest figures in data science, like um, Hadley Wickham or Jenny Bryan over at our studio, right? They're they're really kind people. Um, and you'll often see them sharing about their process on Twitter, um, and kind of offering advice and being open about when they make mistakes, too, so you feel a little bit better about your own imposter syndrome. Um, but yeah, following kind experts, I, I think, we'll, we'll, um, is the biggest piece of advice that I, I've ever gotten. Um, and I, I think there are a lot of kind experts in the data science community thankfully so um yeah quick plug for for that the data science community is a wonderful place and part of why i love my job so much
0: i, I think that's great advice and uh certainly we'll be adding links to all those uh, those twitter handles and the blog post that'll accompany the podcast too just so people can, can check those out um th- thanks a lot uh, kat i appreciate it
1: yeah of course thanks for having me